When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and I answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where today we're talking about Balaam again, and sorcery, and divination, and also Paulie Murray. And I, I made a mistake in the Paulie Murray section, you'll probably catch it, that um, I often said that some of Paulie Murray's barriers to getting an education and being excluded from places was because she was black and because Polly Murray was a woman and also because of Polly Murray's writings, a non-binary person. We might describe them that way today. Um, but I didn't point out that the reason Polly Murray was discriminated against and had these struggles was because of racism and sexism, not because of anything um, that Pauli Murray was doing wrong or in any way because of Pauli Murray. The struggles in those areas of education and other acts of discrimination were not because of Pauli Murray. They were because of the evil and racism and sexism of the people with which she lived in community with. So we know that and I want to apologize for that as someone pointed that out shortly after I finished talking in our morning prayer. Our broadcasts are always the live broadcast of morning prayer that we do every day on Zoom. So if you'd like to join us, let me know, runnermonk at gmail.com or text me through the Audible app and I will get you the link for those morning prayer meetings. You're always invited to pray with us in real time. Balaam has blessed Israel when he is hired to curse it. And then in chapter 24 here, it says that um, he did not look for omens um, or he did not practice divination against them. The prohibition against divination or sorcery or omens, it's hard to know exactly what this meant for Balaam as an Aramean or a Syrian. He is not of the tribe of Israel. Um, he is a um, foreigner, if you will, in the sense of the identity of the people of Israel being a separate people group descending from Abraham. And yet, um, he knows how to do stuff, and he's got this gift of prophecy, and also this ability to use divination, sorcery. Um, and the prohibition against sorcery is there for a couple reasons in the Bible, um, and certainly is restated numerous times, although this particular phrasing and word for divination or sorcery is only used in the story of Balaam, which might mean that he, um, he has special foreign powers, maybe that we might see it that way, that, um, that he is sought after by the Moabites, by Balak, to do this kind of work. But he doesn't practice it. The prohibitions against sorcery, divination, omens, um, is there for a couple reasons. One of them is that um, it is always done as a curse on someone else. Um, that you are cursing someone else uh, 
through either a picture of them or a image that evokes their aura or spirit, or uh, probably the most classic example in pop culture today, although it's not probably how it's actually practiced, is the so-called voodoo doll, where you mutilate or poke an image of someone to try to inflict harm on the actual person. So there's this distance to divination that always exists. That's why he has to see the people um, to be able to do practice divination against them. Um, so there's this line of sight issue or maybe physical proximity. The other reason div- divination is prohibited um, because it's always cursing. Rarely is it um, a blessing to someone else to practice divination against them. Um, the other is that it's manipulative. Um, if you're able to manipulate the reality of a person's life, um, the chances are you're going to do harm to them. Um, not just harm in physical pain or in economic loss or something like that, but you're altering the course of their lives um, as they can understand it. So there's that issue of violating someone's uh, autonomy and their own physical being. And then another reason is that uh, divination is usually involving poisons. Um, the word used in Greek uh, for these practices is pharmakia, where we get our word pharmacy from, um, both referring to um, drugs that alter our mental states to help us to see visions and have experiences, but also um, poisons where we either try to kill somebody from a distance by slipping them something in their drink or uh, trying to get them to fall in love with us or get them to have an aversion to something. That's also a thing that poisoners do. So sometimes people translate these words poisoners. Um, So there is this malicious intent of divination that is definitely in the story. Um, This is not, this doesn't mean that, um, that consulting things other than just asking God are somehow forbidden in scripture. Many, in many cases, God uses the Urim and Thummim. These are stones from the high priest's breastplate to give answers. Sometimes the answer is yes or no. Other times the answer is a little more detailed. So it's hard to know how these stones are functioning in the life of the people of God as ways of knowing what to do when you don't know what to do. Um, In many other cases of Jacob and his twisted sticks where he carves the sticks and the mandrakes that are brought and all these other um, things that we might look at as um, divination, but are probably more uh, folk medicine or folk practices of blessing and of trying to figure out what to do in a situation. Uh, one of the most, in the in St. Francis, uh, when he went to find out what God wanted him to do with his life, he practiced a form of folk, um, I don't know, it's hard to know how to describe it without making it sound bad or good, but um, he practiced a practice that was very common in the medieval world, in the Christian world, was to go to the church, get the gospel book out, and flip it open three times. And whatever your finger landed on the third time would be what God was saying to you. And that's when he flipped it open and it said, 
um, sell all you have, give to the poor, and follow me. And that's what he did with his life because of that practice that, you know, was not about prayer or about study, um, but about sort of a lottery of God's grace, if you will. So again, this uh, practice that Balaam doesn't do, looking for omens, um, but he sees Israel camping and he can't help but bless them with this oracle again. Um, Christians today are not against divination because we don't think it's real. We are against things that harm people. We are against people that curse one another. We are against it for those reasons, not because it's not real. Um, It's just like believing in God doesn't mean you don't believe in a lot of other stuff. It just, you know, worshiping God as a monotheist means that um, people worship the one true and living God over and against all the other options, which are also very real in this world. The principalities and powers or the council of the gods as described in the book of Job. Again, the story of Balaam tells us there's a lot more going on in the story of God working in the world. A lot of stuff that we really um, can't always understand. And so this blessing um, that is given to the people of God is another blessing. And it so infuriates Balak, who has paid Balaam to do this cursing, um, that he, he says his anger was kindled against Balaam and he struck his hands together. He does this like, I'm talking to you. I'm so mad. I'm going to. Now, why didn't he hit him? I always think like, why is Balak so nice to Balaam? Every time he's just like, well, let's try this. You know, let's try this. I think he's afraid of Balaam. He's afraid that Balaam will curse him. He knows Balaam has this power. It's real. Balak believes in it. And he knows that if he harms Balaam, something might happen to him. Balaam has built in the fail safe, kind of like a a guy who's negotiating with a with a bomb strapped to his chest or a therm- holding a thermal detonator in Star Wars. Um, you got to listen to what he says. You can't just kill him or slap him or something. So Balaam's so angry, he strikes his, he claps his hands. Um, we do this on social media sometimes where sort of the every word hand clap, every word hand clap, I'm telling you to... And sometimes you get in, you get so frustrated with a kid or something. It's like, listen to me. I'm going to tell you this one more time. I don't know. But it's very uh, odd that we have this description of his hand gestures and his noises he's making. Um, there's only one place in the prayer book where it says you're supposed to applause. You're supposed to applaud. Um, I think it's the installation of a new rector in a church, I think. I think that's where it is. Um Episcopal churches are not known for their applause, maybe. We're just often seen as it's sort of celebrating the person and not God or something like that. But I think applause is always appropriate because it's something humans do when we're happy and we want to celebrate something. And um, if there's something that we do when we're happy and we want to celebrate, we ought to do that in worship. C.S. Lewis said, I've never understood why people think that it's okay to get excited at a football game, soccer game in England, um, but not in church. But if somebody does that in church, there's something wrong with them. But if they do it at a soccer game, then they're just a good fan. And uh, C.S. Lewis, who is not known for his 
excessive exuberance um, certainly saw that. And we ought to honor that as well in our worship. If you feel something, you should express it. Um, that is always a good thing for all, of, for all places in our lives. So this oracle that he says, you know, he says, I told you before, and I'll tell you again, I have to say what God tells me to say. And this is where Balaam is a figure of faith. Even though he's got problems, and even though he's done some terrible things in the past, he does speak what God tells him to say. And that is always an example to us. Will we say what God tells us to say? Um, We studied Esther last night, who knew that she didn't have a lot of power in the situation. She knew it was a long shot to save her people. Um, But as her uncle said to her, maybe you've come to this place for such a time as this. Maybe your words are going to be the thing that changes everything. And maybe not. You don't know. Maybe God will use some other plan. Help will arise from another place. But here you are in this time, in this place. Speak for God. Say the words that God puts in your heart. So I invite all of us to think of when we're talking to someone today, or writing to someone or whatever we're doing, think, how can I bless this person? What is God's blessing for this person that I'm talking to? What do I need to feel and hear and speak to them um, for God? What would God say to this person if they were listening to them right now? How would God bless them? And if you know what that is, speak it. Because like Balaam says, I only say what God is telling me to say. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Today the church celebrates the life and witness of Pauli Murray. Um, I believe she is becoming more of a household name, perhaps, in our um, times as more people watch the new documentary um, that's about her life, and as more awareness is paid to the civil rights struggle in America, as well as the um, experiences of non-binary people um, in our community. Pauli Murray was uh, an early committed civil rights activist and the, and the first African-American woman ordained a priest in the Episcopal Church. She was born in Baltimore in 1910 and became, a, uh, as I've read, nearly an orphan um, in her early childhood um, because of some fam- family turmoil and dislocation. She was raised in Durham, North Carolina, and was able to go to Hunter College in 1933. So there were, um, she was able to find a way to receive education, even at that early part of of American um, civil liberties. Uh, After seeking admission to the graduate school at University of North Carolina in 1938, 
she was denied entry due to her race. Um, this is not that long ago, and we think of the many people that have been denied opportunities for education due to their race. And I've read some of the letters, um, rejection letters, that say in very um, coded language that a person is not accepted because of their race for being black. Um, And they're very disturbing letters to read because they are written as if that's a normal thing um, and that's a good thing for them. Um, Very disturbing stuff. But that happened to her. Um, She went to Howard University Law School in Washington, D.C. and graduated in 1944 during World War II. While a student at Howard, she participated in a sit-in demonstration that challenged racial segregation in drugstores and cafeterias in Washington, D.C. Um, this, these were acts of extreme bravery um, for black young people to go and sit at a restaurant, to sit at a soda fountain or, or another public place that was only allowed, that only allowed white people to sit there in, on the benches at the soda bar um, and not move until someone grabbed them and pulled them away. These were, um, these were extremely risky as crowds of white men would gather around shouting, screaming, and often hitting, punching, pulling um, these young men and women as they participated in sit-ins. Um, we think of activism today and we say, be careful, don't do anything that'll disturb the peace. Um, and yet it was these events that did disturb the peace that changed the way the law and regulations and city governments dealt with segregation. Um, she was denied admission to Harvard to, for more study because of her gender so both race and gender playing in. And she received a Master of Laws degree from the University of California at Berkeley in 1945, which did admit her. 1948, the Women's Division of Christian Service of the Methodist Church hired Murray to compile information about segregation laws in the South. Um, Her research led to a 1951 book, State's Laws on Race and Color, that was a foundational document for Thurgood Marshall in his decisive Brown versus the Board of Education Supreme Court decision in 1954. So many of the laws excluding black people from participation in society were unwritten or they were written in such a way that they were hard to to categorize or compile. And that was one of the defenses that racist states and other governments used was that, you know, we really don't have any laws about this or you can't strike down laws that don't exist, or those are local decisions, not national decisions or state decisions. So as usual, the way people obfuscate justice is to make it confusing and pile on a bunch of stuff that, so she was in her detailed, meticulous research and travel. She compiled this book of all these laws that discriminated against black people in America that were very hard to to compile. And um, her work led to the Brown versus the Board of Education Supreme Court decision, which 
um, allowed uh, or broke down barriers to education for black people. She devoted her life to dismantling dismantling the barriers of race. She saw the civil rights movement and the women's movements as intertwined and believed that black women had a vested interest in the women's movement. During this time, she had a call to ordain ministry. She began her studies at General Theological Seminary in New York in 1973 and was ordained a deacon in 1976 and priest um, in 1977 at the Washington National Cathedral. She served at the Church of the Atonement in Washington, D.C. from 1979 to 81 and at Holy Nativity Church in Baltimore until her death in 1985. Her... Longtime partner, um, a woman that I do not remember her name, uh, died, I believe, shortly before her ordination. That was one of the reasons she sought ordination was she had cared for her dying partner, who she was not allowed to marry by law, but um, loved very much and was committed to and cared for her in her dying uh, years. And it was that event that prompted her to um, seek ordination. Um, Polly Murray often w- would write about how she did not consider herself a woman, even though she was involved in the women's movement, um, and would sometimes use they pronouns to describe herself. I'm using she, her pronouns because that is the predominant way that Polly Murray identified herself to the world, but there are these writings of hers that speak to um, her not feeling that she felt uh, comfortable using feminine pronouns. So, in the discussion of their life, we respect her. We respect Polly Murray's decision to um, to explore that, and we remember that not everybody sees the world that we might the way we might see the world. And not everyone sees themselves the way we might see ourselves. And so when someone is exploring their gender identity, um, often as a non-binary person or or in some way as a trans person, a transgender person, um, we show love and respect to them by respecting the way they describe themselves with their pronouns. So even in this discussion, I'm not fully sure how Pauli Murray would have functioned in our current climate um, as she died in 1985. But this was definitely in their writings. Pauli Murray wrote about this. Her book, uh, Pauli Murray's books include a memoir, Proud Shoes, Story of of an American Family, and Song in a Weary Throat, An American Pilgrimage. Pauli Murray's poems are beautiful. Her prayers are beautiful. um, And so we thank God for her life. Liberating God, we thank you most heartily for the steadfast courage of your servant, Pauli Murray, who fought long and well. Unshackle us from the bonds of prejudice and fear so that we show forth your reconciling love and true freedom, which you revealed through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. And we pray a prayer for Fridays, call it for Fridays. Almighty God, whose most dear son went not up to joy, but first he suffered pain and entered not into glory before he was crucified. 
Mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hard wood of the cross, that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your Spirit, that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you, for the honor of your name. Amen. Almighty God, who sittest in the throne, judging right, we humbly beseech thee to bless the courts of justice and the magistrates of this land, and give unto them the spirit of wisdom and understanding, that they may discern the truth and impartially administer the law in the fear of thee alone. Through him who shall come to be our judge, thy Son, our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.